Hi, my name is Chris Hall. You're listening to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out of the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Chris Hall. Sure, no problem at all. So my name is Chris Hall. I am the founder of a non-profit within the hospitality industry called the burnt chef project which is basically is set up to challenge the stigma surrounded by um, mental health or stigma of mental health within hospitality which historically today is uh you know it's quite a tough industry to work in but it's also incredibly stoic and you know you'll, you'll never usually find a, a chef talking openly touchy-feely about uh, about their feelings and and things like that so you know there's a there's a systemic problem within hospitality that the burnt chef project has has been designed to to set up and challenge um i mean we've been going now for well we started in may 2019 so we've been going just over well, officially we launched in october 2019 so we're going for about 18 19 months now and you know what started off as uh, me just taking some photos of some chefs to try and raise a bit of awareness soon turned into you know getting direct messages from different parts of the world asking what, what i was going to do next or what talks i was going to do um and then it culminated in obviously covid hitting and me quitting my job in october to take this on full time and really start to to get into a subject that previously was never discussed joining us in the studio today it's the two fellas we're back to a the fabulous threesome and welcome back mate how are we i'm good good to be back it's great to have you uh yeah it's very very nice to be back and uh amongst you lovely fellas <laughs> yeah, it's been a little bit of a while so it's uh it's nice to uh nice to be here i'm sure the listeners are just so pleased to hear you on the show again mate uh, especially now we're back in person and we can do it on these Quite lovely microphones, it makes yeah. you sound smooth. Yeah, there was a few fans outside, you know, cheering me on. And That's that, it, isn't and it? It's just what you need coming into into the studio. You want to be in the right frame of mind, don't you? And I mean, in the same vein as Steven Gerrard yesterday, I presume your message to them is you understand their excitement, but you have to encourage them to stay safe, stay vigilant, you know, hands, face, space. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, how are we, mate? I'm all right, thanks, mate. Preferred to play in the back three, so comfortable, <laughs> comfortable with Bob to the right of me. Yeah, that, I would imagine, no, I mean, the listeners can't see us right now, but we're in a kind of, Ryan, you'd be the deeper of the three mm-hmm. in the sort of sweeper position. Yeah. I mean, I'm worried about me in this left sort of centre-half <laughs> position. I feel sort of quite exposed, depending on who's playing left wing back. I think you're just a stopper. You and Bob be a stopper. Clear it. I'll just clear up behind yeah. us. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. You know, I, I, you know, the, the, sometimes you've just got to play a role, yeah. And I'm happy to do that. Yeah, but you can maraud forward, can't you as well? Like Harry Maguire, yeah. And I've got a massive head as well. That's true. Step true. into the play, mm. fabulous. Mm. So, chaps, we've got Chris Hall from the Burnt Chef Project on today. It's Monday the seventeenth of May. It's the next, um, it's the next point on the roadmap, as they say. 
as Boris would say, next point in the roadmap, which means that pubs, restaurants, bars, and other entertainment and hospitality venues are allowed to have patrons inside yeah. their doors, which I'm sure is terribly exciting for all of us, the three of us, with a couple of other of our mates, went and did a socially distanced rule of six few pints the other week didn't we and that was yep. very fun but it did rain on us for a short period well it rained on me and and, and uh, Ryan you were under the, the parasol I was um, protected yeah um, you know we were happy to make that sacrifice for you I was happy to take it yeah I'm sure you were <laughs> um, but are we excited lads back 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 inside we can go inside a restaurant we can go inside it'll the probably pub. be sunny now yeah I know it's, it's quite sunny now you can know, go inside don't even want to go inside nothing but rain the whole of May uh, but yeah, I think it makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Yeah, huge, huge difference. I know I'm out on Friday. I think you're out on Friday as well, aren't you? And are you going to Hoolies on Friday? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we are. I'm yeah, going yeah. to Liverpool yeah. on Friday. Oh yeah. Um, You've been invited to something I've not been invited to. It's oh, uh, awkward. Uh, <laughs> do you want to come out on Friday? <laughs> I mean, live on air. I'd love to come out on Friday. Just didn't know it was happening. Shocking, yeah, this, yeah. isn't it? But well, Pop's plans are with people you know. My plans aren't. It sounds so. like they're not. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like the people I used to know <laughs> and have forgotten We're me. We're going to break out to go to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, are we excited, are we, fellas? Yeah, are we, no, are we... It's good. It's good. It's a next step, isn't it, to, to yeah. normality? Hopefully. And I think, you know, we're, we're recording today, the day after the FA Cup final. When the, How many were in Wembley yesterday? 20,000. 20,000. And we've just had the news recently, haven't we? The Tramir are going to have a few thousand in for their playoff game a yep. week on Thursday. Uh, and have you secured your, your ticket? I have secured my ticket. I'm waiting for it to be sent over. But yeah, um, that is quite exciting. I think getting the the ability to go for a pint beforehand as well is quite nice. Because yeah. I don't think we could do... We couldn't really do much of that in the last two games. And yeah, we, haven't, we didn't win in the last two games. So I'm a bit nervous about going. <laughs> so we haven't been in great form. But um, yeah, I think everyone's just looking forward to it, aren't they? It just becomes a little bit more normal. Yeah. And I think... I think there was something put out when they said, you know, well, beer gardens will be allowed to open in April. That, like, at least, I think maybe like two thirds of the pubs in England. Yeah, didn't 60%, have a, wasn't it? Didn't have a beer garden. So no I think it's just. Yeah. I mean, pubs are, are, are they're almost like an endangered species in themselves, aren't yeah. they? So, and, and it's, you know, it's really difficult. And, and as, as you hear in this interview coming up, there's a lot of pressures involved as well. Absolutely. There's a lot of money involved in it as well. So. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And that brings us on nicely. You, you work with Chris in your day job, or at least, you know, work alongside him periodically in your day job. So do you want to give us and the listeners a little bit of an idea as how this interview came about? Yeah, so we're doing some um, some work with, with Chris, and as you just mentioned, in my day job, uh, which is focused around hospitality. Saw that Chris had set up this wonderful organisation, um, really trying to, to spread the awareness around what difficult environment hospitality can be, uh, high pressured, often low paid, unsociable hours, and um, the detriment that can be to the people who work in it. It seemed fitting that while we're going through COVID, it was one of the industries that's been struck worse th- than others, uh, but of course not the only industry. And the time, and I just thought, well, for something different, because a lot of people, we talk a lot about football and socialising on the show, and a lot of that socialising happens in hospitality mm-hmm. venues. and. I suppose the two go hand in hand. We've had a lot of people talk about being lonely, being isolated, and, and part of that reason is because they can't attend hospitality yeah. venues. So I asked Chris if he wanted to come on. He's, he's somebody who's got his own website. Um, he's got his own uh, text messaging service. He's got his own podcast himself. So 
just to also signpost to the stuff he's doing for anybody who listens who's in those circles. So yeah, asked him and he came on and it was a, it was a good sort of ninety minutes, two hours that we spent speaking to him. It was, it was very enjoyable, and we also got some t-shirts out of it. Off, we did. Off Chris, which yours? I need to get it to you. Pub, we didn't get one for you, unfortunately, mate. That's fine. Sorry. I'll I'll wear mine on Friday <laughs> if I'm if I'm invited. It's going to you're not coming to pub now, but you got it there before me. <laughs> um, and and for the listeners who who are who are obviously keenly listening and keenly waiting, what is um, today's theme, please, mate? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, obviously, obviously, it's a very well-known saying, isn't it? But that industry, I've, I worked a little job, um, in kitchens, like in a kitchen years ago, and it is tough, like and. You realise that, like, you know, when you think, oh, I'm just taking food out to someone, and you're like, these chefs are, like, a little bit, like, right on it, like, a little bit tense, mm. a little bit tetchy. They're in charge of budgets, they're in charge of all this food, in charge of, basically, outside of a manager, they are, they're yeah, the reason why... in charge pe- of the kitchen, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're the reason why people are there, and it's really, it is quite a, a bit of a thing to get used to, so I think to have... The protection for for those people who are working in those environments. I mean, like Ryan just said, it's really unsociable hours. It's really difficult, um, and you're it's prone quite, to getting abuse from patrons I, as well, quite yeah, regularly as well, aren't you? You're kind of a I would say bit of a punching bag for people when they're yeah out and I, I would have thought it's quite male dominated, is it? I think kitchens have been historically. I think it's probably a little bit more diverse now than it yeah. used to be, but. Um, other things that people don't even think of, which Chris touched on, is like really hot in there. Yeah, yeah. And stuff like loud that as well. As well. Loud. No and, windows. And it's relentless. There isn't really that many breaks. Yeah. Um, I think there's a reason why you see a lot of chefs outside smoking. Yeah. Um, because just to get just that break in it. Stressful, yeah. stressful job. And then, as you talked on there, Anders, the people down the hierarchy as such, it, they have to put up with the brunt oh. of anything going wrong, um, whether that's customer or in house. Yeah, we, so, we yeah. used to have a few things where, like, you'd come in, you'd make a bit of a mistake and you'd be fearful of what was going to be said to you. Um, Particularly around like weddings and stuff, obviously you have to have the hot plates like stacked up and the further away in the room you go, the hotter the plates get. And obviously you can't really go out with like tea towels because it's a wedding, you want to look a little bit classy and stuff. So you've got these like serviettes, tissues, just holding them and the the heat is burning through. Yeah. It is difficult. It's just, it is a very, very difficult environment for all of them. Um, so I I thought this was absolutely fantastic. You know, some of the work he was doing and setting up that that tech service as well. Is, yeah. I think is brilliant. Fantastic. So that's obviously our theme: out of the frying pan and into the fire. If you pick up on anything, then uh, make sure to email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can tweet us, and our handle is at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag. Where's the talking lads? We'll be back on the other side, but we're now going to hand you over to Chris Hall and the Burnt Chef Project. You're listening to Man Marking. Now, I've seen firsthand through my job the type of work the Burn Chef Project does. Can you just explain to anybody listening what it is you kind of do on a, on a day-to-day and what the overall objective and goals are? Sure, no problem. I mean, the Burn Chef Project is, in essence, it's a clothing brand. Um, so we sell, well, clothing brand, merchandise brand. So we sell branded merchandise such as you know, notebooks, well-being journals, recipe books, chef's whites, hoodies t-shirts we've got some knives coming just had uh our new uh keep cup uh, oh you can't see it our keep cup uh 
coffee cups come in. And basically what, what happens with all that money is that every time we make a sale, 100% of those profits go directly to trying to improve the industry. Now, that was a big claim at the beginning because I didn't know what we needed to do to improve the industry or how we can support the industry. So initially, I just spent a lot of time reinvesting those profits back into increasing our merchandise range so that we had more to offer to people, more to be able to grab the attention of individuals and get them to come to the store. And gradually over time, those profits started to build up and we started looking at what the issue was specifically within hospitality. And it came down to lack of awareness. It came down to lack of education on the subject matter. And so with that, we started putting a lot of that money into building training modules. So it'd be around uh, mental health awareness. We paid third party companies or charities for mental health first aid. And then that started to develop into building more and more modules. And it culminated in February of this year, actually, where we launched the Burnt Chef Support Service. So in tandem with Mental Health Innovations, who run the, the very successful Shout Service, we have now got our very own version of that using their platform, whereby any time, day or night, 24 hours a day, someone within hospitality, whether you're in the supply chain, front of house, back of house, whether you're related to someone in hospitality, you can text Burnt Chef to 85258 and you'll have a trained volunteer text you back within five minutes. Um, so that's something that we've put a lot of money and in, in time into setting up. And in addition to that, obviously, with, uh, with the fantastic relationship we've built with CPL and, and uh, you know, that's, that's ongoing. We're in the final throes of launching a Burnt Chef Academy, which is going to be a predominantly free well-being training app whereby people can learn uh, about personal resilience. They can learn about stress management. We're, we're loading up our own courses on this, such as, you know, managing mental health in the workplace and really just trying to plow as much education and information into people into bite-sized chunks so that at the end of the day, they leave knowing a little bit more about mental health, mental illness, and also how it can impact them and others around them, basically. Fantastic. And, and what was the motivation to start the Burton Chef project? So there was a combination of factors, really. I mean, it's it's no secret, as I said at the beginning, that, that hospitality and chefs specifically are you know quite a tough breed. You know, all of us are familiar with Gordon Ramsay or, or videos of Marco Pierre White screaming and shouting in the kitchen <laughs> and, you know, giving someone a, a once over. And, you know, the stories within hospitality, are, 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 you know, they, they're, they're as far as they are wide in terms of people getting digs to the ribs when they've made mistakes and things like that. So that was something that always struck me as very strange, especially coming from different backgrounds. You know, I've worked in the financial industry, mechanical engineering industry, the insurance industry, uh, travel industry. And I have never, ever known of anything quite like the hospitality industry. Um, it's an industry you fall in love with, uh, as I, I did 12 years ago. But it's also an industry where the rules of the normal white collar background working environment don't tend to apply in hospitality because everything goes on behind the scenes. So that's that sat with me for a long period of time. But, you know, I, I, I struggled with depression quite severely when I was in my my late teens. And um, I ended up in a really, really dark hole uh, where I was sort of bedridden for, for the best part of six months. So, you know, I 
quit work, quit college, couldn't get out of bed. Every day it was like looking out of a well and seeing this tiny patch of light at the top and not being able to reach it. Um, you know, not to mention the fact that you, you feel lost and you feel, you know, just useless and you feel tearful and all the other stuff that I was feeling at the time. But I didn't really know at that period of time what was wrong with me. And I think anyone that has had a mental illness, you're very acutely aware of what that feels like. And you're always, you know, it's the term of the black dog, isn't it? You're always thinking that it's just over your shoulder and it's going to come back at any moment. And then fast forward to when I was 28, you know, happily married, had to have two children. Um, I was a sales manager getting paid a decent wage in a company I enjoyed working for. But something just wasn't quite right. Um, you know, I belonged to, a, I, I played, well, I was a captain for the second team of, of my rugby, uh, local rugby um, team that I played for. I was playing regularly for the firsts as well. But with all of this going swimmingly, I felt like I didn't fit into anywhere. Didn't believe I should have been a dad. Didn't think that I should be playing rugby and that I didn't fit in with my friends. And I just spent so much time looking at other people going, they obviously don't have thoughts going through their head like I do. Like, why can't I be like them? Like, why can't I walk around with this void in my head and just, you know, blissfully unaware of life? Why, have I, why am I overthinking things too much? And why am I broken and no one else is? Anyway, that, that um, culminated in me coming home one day from work uh, with a firm decision in my head to divorce my wife, uh, leave my children. Um, so I packed my bags and, you know, went out and told my wife that I was leaving her. And she just looked at me in disbelief and she was like, where's this coming from? And I was like, well, it's obviously obvious you don't want me around and I don't belong here and all this sort of stuff. She said, what on earth are you talking about? Like none of this, this isn't a conversation we've ever had. You know, we get on well. What on earth is this about? And with that, I started to sort of triple guess myself then. And I thought, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I, I think I need to go and see some help. So I ended up going to see a cognitive behavioral therapist down in Bournemouth. And I did it completely on the sly. So like I put fake, fake appointments in my diary at work. So my boss didn't know I was going out for these appointments. I didn't tell my wife. Um, and I did this completely out of shame. But I knew that I needed to, to speak to someone who may be able to give me some sort of answers. And it was during those first couple of sessions that she basically sat down and as CBT it tends to go, you know, they ask you certain questions that get you to evaluate where you are in your life and what, why you're feeling like the way you do. And I suddenly realized that what I was feeling wasn't unique to me. It was unique as most mental illnesses are in regards to personality disorders, anxieties, depressions, you know, we experience them in our own unique ways. But the fact is, is that, I don't, I'm not unique in the fact that I've had mental illnesses. And that really was a catalyst for me. And it set me on a, on a two year journey of self-discovery, trying to find out what my core values were, trying to find out who I was and where I fit in society. Um, and I plowed a lot of time and energy into uh, learning about business and learning what made people tick in terms of psychology and learning about depression. Anyway, long story short, and I know this is a, <laughs> It's a, a long answer to, to a short question, but I was having conversations once I was a bit more comfortable with my situation. I was having more com having conversations with uh, my, my friends and my colleagues who were in the industry. 
and they were saying that they you know they'd experienced times of trouble with um addiction you know heavily reliant on alcohol or drugs to get through the day or they were heavily depressed or they just didn't feel anything anymore because they were suffering from burnout and so i decided that i didn't want anyone else to feel like the way i did and i didn't want to see an industry that i love start to fall to pieces because ultimately everyone within it or a, a large majority of p- people it turns out were struggling with their own mental health and so i decided you know, I'd taken up photography for a bit of mindfulness and I decided at the time to start taking some black and white photos of some chefs um, just to really raise awareness that more goes on behind the scenes than, than you can see. Um, and I remember one of my, fir- my, my mates, he, um, I said to him, can, you have your, can, you, can I take your photo? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. That's fine. I'll, I'll be good for a, a portfolio picture. And I was like, okay, cool. He said, what's it for? And I said, oh, it's for mental health to raise awareness. He was like, no chance, no chance. I'm not having my photo taken. I was like, oh, look, you're, yeah. you're a mate of mine. It doesn't, you don't have to have mental health issues, but just have your photo taken. He was like, no, 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 I'm not doing this. And it took me a week to get his photo done. And I, and I was meeting this resistance quite, quite commonly when I was asking people, and I found that quite curious. And then over time, once people knew why I was there and why I had a camera out and what I was there to photograph, I started getting people ask to have their photo taken. And the more people that were having their photo taken, I think the more comfortable other others became to join up and then it started to snowball. And every single time I had my head ducked behind the camera and I was lining the shot up, that person who stood there, vulnerable, would sometimes come out and say you know i've tried to commit suicide or you know i i was abused as a child or all of this sort of you know these these quite heavy topics would would suddenly just just spill out of them and it would often be that i would be the first person they'd spoken to about it but this was happening quite frequently and so with that i decided to to set up the burnt chef project and just really challenge that status quo not really knowing where it would go and and here we are today has running the Burn Chef project been cathartic? Has it helped with your own mental health? Does it feel more rewarding to you to do this rather than be a sales manager? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the point the point came to. I was still happy within work. You know, even with COVID, I had a strong team. Um, you know, we were making good plans, good good performance, and and everything else. But um, it just came to a point where it was like a calling. I had to do this because it was beneficial to more people than it was to my team or to the business I was working for. Um, and that was quite a stressful time because I felt my loyalty loyalties were really split. But um, yeah, I guess it has been quite cathartic in a way because it allows me to talk openly about my own mental health issues and also provide a resource for others that sort of as a, as a shining light for something that previously hasn't been discussed. Um, but I think the biggest benefit for me personally is the self-awareness. I think talking about mental health, I think anyone that's had a mental health issue is probably more self-aware than, than anything else because you have to look inside to be able to understand what's going on and to try and move through it. But I think that being able to do it with other people on a daily basis, um, 
I've become more, a lot more acutely self-aware of what's going on in my own brain, my own body, and also what's going on around me as well. Um, and I think that's been one of the biggest benefits for me personally. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And you, you touched on before that you did go to Bournemouth for some, for some treatment. How did you find the process of seeking professional help? Because it's often a sticking point for a lot of people when they reach breaking point and they try and seek help that they find that process very draining, very difficult, often a lot of waiting lists, or they just can't go through with it. Well, I mean, I, for me, as I said, there was a lot of shame involved. So the first thing was trying to find someone and I picked up the phone and put it down and picked up the phone and put it down. And this went on for some time until I actually managed to have the confidence to phone the the particular therapist I'd chosen. Um, I went private for my CBT. And the reason being is that my wife at the time was suffering from health anxiety. Um, she was experiencing quite quite high health anxiety and also anxiety around being in the car and on the road. And so she phoned the NHS service to be able to get some assistance. And then she was on like a, I don't know, it was a two month waiting list. And in the end, it was only telephone conversations. And, and I knew that, you know, me going home and asking my wife for a divorce out of the complete blue and, and attempting to leave my children completely in the lurch was something that probably needed quite yeah, quite dramatic or, or quite instant help. So I, I paid for cognitive behavioral therapy. It costs about £40 a session. And that first session is, it's, um, it's a struggle to get over that threshold and get into that room because you don't know what you're expecting. You know that you're, you know, you're reluctant. You don't want to go into that room and bear your soul to that person. You know, you, you, you don't want to, don't want to let your insides be all soft and soft and squidgy and get poked around inside. Um, but also, you know, that you have to do it to be able to try and make, make some distance and move forward. So that first session was, was, was it was okay it wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be and it was a nice easy session to be able to guide you into the type of questions they're going to ask in terms of what directions they want to lead you in um, or you lead yourself in because it's ultimately it's guided by you um but then it it left me after the first session feeling quite curious actually about the next one and see what was what was coming up and i, I ended up completely flipping on his head and couldn't wait to get into the next one and in 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 terms of mental health people often think you either have it or you don't or you cure it and often it's just a case of managing your, your own mental health in the sort of months or years after then how how have you managed your own so I mean, obviously, and one thing that I, I really try and clarify whenever I have these type of talks is that we all have mental health. It doesn't matter what your sex or your race is. Mental health is something that we all have. Somewhere along the line, mental health and physical health got separated, and we talk about them in two entirely different ways. But it's just health, and the two are very connected. You know, if you've got a long-term physical illness, it can bleed on to mental illnesses. If you've got a long-term mental illness, it can then have a direct impact on your physical health. The two are so interlinked. Um, but with regards to how I manage my mental health and my overall well-being and keep it keep it good, there's a few things that I do, but I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but working in this space, you tend to actually end up neglecting sometimes your mental health more 
<laughs> then you do yeah. get after it. Um, so for me, I mean, my key thing is I've got a dog. He's getting on a bit now. He's 12 years old, but I all I make a habit now of getting up and going for an hour's walk every morning. Um, I'm quite an overactive, I have an overactive brain, so I'm always listening to audio books. I'm always doing things. I've always got distractions around me. But one thing I try and make a point of from time to time is taking my headphones out or leaving them at home turning my phone off and going for a walk and I've just absorbed myself with nature, like listening to the birds because the dawn chorus is coming through at the moment, looking at the grass, looking at the trees and seeing what's growing during spring and really just trying to get in the thick of what's going on around me. And that for me is quite um, therapeutic. Um, you know, journaling, I try and do from time to time, but I've got to be honest, I'm not, I'm not very disciplined at it, although I do know that it's incredibly beneficial. Um, just to be able to try and get everything down in front of you and out of your brain and organize it into a nice simple format or even a, a chaotic format but it's not in your head anymore and that's a really good thing as well um, and another than that it's just like I try and I try and exercise I try and remember to run at least once a week my diet I try and make sure that I'm drinking plenty of water um, because I found out the other day that if you if you're three percent dehydrated your brain starts to fog and you start stop thinking as clearly as you usually do. Now you only know you're dehydrated when your lips go dry um, and you start to get that dry mouth. And that stage is four or 5%. So you're already dehydrated by the point that you know you're dehydrated. So for me, I've started to try and to drink two liters of water a day and make sure that I'm just eating regular, like nutritionally balanced foods, um, omega-3s, um, vitamin B12s, vitamin Cs, vitamin Ds, uh, just to try and keep uh, my overall health and, and my mental health in, in good condition. There's some great advice in there. I really like the 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 idea of walking without your phone, and I, I'm similar to yourself. I'm overactive, both in my sort of thinking, but also just naturally. I'm so fidgety. Like the worst thing for me sitting at home is my knees going up and down. I just can't sit still. But I never go for a walk anywhere without headphones, ever. I hate it. I find it boring. But it, as you say, it is a great opportunity to just relax. Because while I, I love listening to music and podcasts and things, but you are just distracting yourself in, in, in essence. Whereas I suppose without your phone there to look at and check text as you walk in and, and change the song and change what you're listening to, you can just have that. You almost open your eyes more. You start spotting things that you wouldn't notice. You just walk past things that you didn't even know were there. Um, it's funny how really how your brain tricks you. You're almost on autopilot, I feel, when you put your headphones in. Um, yeah, mass massively. I mean, I think the key thing is is that you've got to bear in mind, like, let's strip it back to its, its basics, its absolute basics. We are biological creatures, right? We're carbon-based life forms. Um, we have been built to respond to stimuli outside us. You know, if it's cold, we shiver to warm up. If it's hot, we sweat to cool down. You know, all of these real basic things. But uh, And back, you know, 30,000 years ago when we were on the plains of Africa, that was absolutely fine. You know, they, they, they worked. They did what they were meant to do. Fast forward to now, all of those things are still there. But there's so many outside stimuli now. It's not just the heat or the weather. It's the social media. It's the financial concerns. It's the societal pressures. It's everything else that goes with it. And that's just constantly attacking your, your nervous system. It's constantly sitting in your subconscious. So 
from time to time we do just need to give ourselves that break and get back to back to the basics where we would have been 30,000 years ago you need to disconnect from the news disconnect from social media disconnect from your phone you know be able to just be present in nature still be alone with your thoughts which you know for me personally is terrifying but it's you know, in its very basic form, just by breathing in and out and without any of those distractions, you lower your heart rate, you know, you you can boost your serotonin, your parasympathetic nervous system starts to relax. And ultimately, you end up in a much better state of wellness than if you're just constantly bombarding yourself with all this information. Yeah, completely agree with all of that. Um, well, just kind of on that, and mental health issues on a broader scale you've talked about that for both clients and friends and just focusing now on hospitality because you work a lot in that, that sector do you think the nature of hospitality uh, there's the disproportionate amount of cases of ill mental health just because of how it works how it operates as you touched on unsociable hours at times aggressive potentially toxic masculinity within workplaces and all the other factors yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, we did a study back in May 2020, so almost a year ago, and the response was overwhelming. We had almost 1,300 respondents, which is probably, I think, to date, it's the largest uh, well-being survey that, that hospitality has had. And we found that eight out of 10 people had experienced at least one mental health issue within their career within hospitality. Now, this is front of house, back of house, housekeeping, you name it. 62 or 63% of those have had one or more instances, like two, three instances. So what was concerning is that the, the sheer volume and the number of people were, 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 had struggled with mental illness. And when I was trying to work out why this was, it's, we did a lot of digging and it comes down to the fact that, um, yes, it is culture. Uh, there's a, you know, the Escoffier system, so the system that kitchens work to especially, is a military-based system. It's all about hierarchy. It's all about structure. It's all about being rigid. It's all about showing no signs of weakness and not letting each other down. And obviously, this was introduced in a time when mental health wasn't even a thing. You know, it wasn't even something that anyone discussed or was even con wasn't aware of as a concept. Um, so that's something that we the hospitality industry has grown up around um that culture of masculinity of stoicism of not being able to ask for help when you need it that combined with the fact that as a military structure it, it's actually been taken completely the opposite way i mean it's a lot better now in the last 10 years it's become a lot better but you know in in, in the hospitality it wasn't uncommon for the chef to throw a pan at your head or to burn you or to kick you or to you know to take out his anger and his stressful um stress on you in a physical way um then on top of that you also have to look at the situation and the stress that, that those individuals are putting on their body such as the the long hours you know sometimes working 11 12 13 14 hours a day six seven days a week with very little time off you know working in environments that are quite hot uh, with very limited access to natural light, with noise going on, such as fans and banging, um, you know, and probably very little control of what you do over a daily basis, especially if you're, you're working for someone who's, uh, 
you know, who's quite tough and who's a bully in that particular environment. So when you start to put all these things together, they basically strip us of everything that, that, that makes us human and puts our bodies under this such high level of stress that the generally the, the in these sort of environments, um, you do find that mental illness is, is more prevalent. And, and the only other industries that we've come across that, that experience the same level or similar levels of, of mental illnesses are the blue light services, the military, um, and also construction workers as well. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a problem, but the industry is getting a lot better and, you know, people are starting to change. They're putting four, four working, four, three, four days on three days off working structures, you know, company cultures have changed massively and that the age of the shouty chef has started to die out now. Um, but yeah, we've still got a, a long way to go in just sort of trying to normalize the, the conversation and, and reduce the stigma. As somebody who's involved in the hospitality sector as a, as a supplier of training, uh, predominantly, the, I'm always seeing in uh, trade press and publications around convincing people to move into hospitality as a career, uh, shortages in skilled uh, roles, and often people just not seeing it as a true career choice, when in fact hospitality can be a brilliant career choice. Do you think the environment added to the fact that a lot of the, the people at the bottom of the hierarchy, as, as you described it, are often students or people on temporary contracts. Do you think it's very off-putting for anybody who's not really been around hospitality or had a nice experience of it to ever really see it as a place to fully work? And, and how much is that changing of culture important for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you only have to YouTube chef and you'll come up with videos of Gordon Ramsay and, and shouty chefs within kitchen environments. And, you know, it, it's it, hospitality has got like a sort of stopgap reputation about it. But as you say, it's a fantastic industry. It's diverse. You can travel the world. You can earn decent money um, if you're prepared to work for it. And it's a fantastic career choice long term for people if they wanted to take it on. Um, but I think that if you come into hospitality and you work for the wrong place, a place that's perhaps a little bit archaic in its views, um, or you, you know, you have, um, you have an experience with mental illness whilst working within hospitality in an environment that perhaps doesn't support and nurture you the way that, that it should do, then I think that you automatically will start looking at other industries to try and support you, uh, in perhaps a better way. But things are changing, as I say, you know, the conversation is improving. Um, you know, the, the information that organizations like like us, the Burnt Chef Project puts out are designed to be able to give people an indication of, of being able to have these conversations and handle them. And, and hopefully what that will then do is with culture changes, you know, working hour changes, um, changes to the environment, such as using induction hobs and low, quieter fans, it means that rather than people leaving the industry at the ripe old age of 35 or 40, you get people staying in roles for longer, which means there's a lower, lower turnover rate, which means that businesses are running at a better level and they're running more efficiently and more profitable. And that way then that when people come into businesses from the other end and students come in, they actually start to look at their mentor who's been in that role now for 10 years and who's happy there. And there's that whole then 
well, actually, this is a place that I could stay for for 10 years. And then the circle starts to starts to change and starts to grow. Um, but, you know, we've got to look at the fact that hospitality is still the third biggest supplier, uh, third biggest employer in the UK with 3.2 million people. Um, but I, I do generally believe that with the changing attitudes and the changing cultures, I think that we can start to see that turn into the, to the second uh, or even the first within the next 10 years or so. Um, the hospitality industry in general has had its challenges, still has its challenge, challenges, and you've set up the Bain Chef project prior to COVID before any of us thought this would happen. But that has created unprecedented levels of strain on the industry, um, record numbers of, of sites closing down, people being out of work for the best part of 12 months. How have you found the sort of requirements and inquiries you're getting at the Bain Chef over the last 12 months? So initially, when, when I set the project up, it was a case of like, we, need, we know we need to tackle company cultures. Um, we know we need to tackle attitudes and, and build awareness within the industry. And that was definitely going to be a slow burner. And then this thing called COVID hits and puts all of us into a spin. And for the first time uh, since World War II, really, we were in a position where globally we were, we were concerned about finances, we were rising rates of anxiety around like, health scares. We're being attacked by this unknown enemy so you you know you're constantly in fight or flight mode so we had to had to try and change the way in which we were we were talking to people and it was more immediate um immediate solutions or immediate suggestions to be able to aid with their well-being so you know certainly within hospitality the biggest issue was is that you've got you know an individual who's done used to doing 60 to 80 hour weeks who has never seen their family before and who are struggling with alcohol and drug addiction and then to go into complete full stop where all of a sudden they're sat at home with their family who they don't really know they are away from their comfortable surroundings because they're not in the, that hospitality routine and also added to that they've got you know financial pressures as well and their body is probably in a state of exhaustion we would we were dealing with a lot of cases of individuals going I, I've got thoughts going through my head and I don't like what I don't like what's going on here usually I've got distractions and ways of coping with that but now I've got nothing what do I do so a lot of time and effort was put into you know um, I ho hosted a, a weekly chat every Friday which was a free drop-in for people to come and just have a chat could be about mental health could be about general well-being could be about breast practices but it was a safe space for people and they knew that they could they would sharing it with other people for the same reason um we worked with a yoga coach who was doing breath work exercises we started doing you know regular conversations and using that time when people were at home to open up more conversations about mental health and get some of the you know the leading names in the industry to talk about it as well and then gradually over time people started to go back to work during the summer and then again it all flipped on its head again because all of a sudden people had got used to that sedentary lifestyle and then they were thrust back into the help out eat out scheme where they were all doing 60 hour weeks again and their bodies were hurting and their brains were hurting and they were exhausted and it was just you know it was a complete flip flopping between the two i think this time around it's been a lot um people were uh, have adjusted as human beings we, we we grow to adjust into into our surroundings and environments and I think with that, then people have started to perhaps, you know, become more accustomed to to how they're feeling and to start looking uh, at their own ways of of managing their their mental health. 
Um, but I, I do generally tend to believe that, especially having spoken to psychologists that have worked with governments in different countries, that, that when people go back to work, that there's there's a likelihood of, um, you know, perhaps another rise of anxiety and um, to go back because it's unfamiliar surroundings and there's different pressures. So, you know, again, we're going to have to change our dynamics, change how we speak to people, change the sort of information that we're putting out there just to be able to provide some relief and, and uh, educate people on, on what they're going through. Chris, you were talking before about the incident with your um, with your wife, where you'd convinced yourself that you know divorcing her and leaving your family and and and, and you know turning your life upside down almost would be the best way to go about solving the problem almost and fixing what was going on with you. And I found that really interesting when when we spoke before we started recording, you were asking me where where the, the podcast came you know this podcast came from, and when I was talking about the end of 2019 being a difficult time that all stemmed from I walked out of my relationship I broke up with my fiance at the time um and, and I'd imagine it was probably a very similar scenario to yourself that I, I knew there was something wrong and I didn't know how else to fix it other than try and change something drastic in my life do you have any kind of insight into to why you came to that conclusion and and you know what why ultimately it, it you know you, you almost didn't go through with it to the full extent if you see what I mean yeah I mean I think um, as men we are problem solvers right we fix things um, and that's just what we do you know if, if someone comes to us with a problem we always try and think of solutions whereas genuinely speaking and this is stereotyping but generally speaking women tend to be uh, able to listen and just to hold information better than, than blokes do which is why suicide rates with men are so much higher than, than with women, because when men have a problem and they feel that suicide is the way out to solve it, which it isn't, it's a, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, they'll, they, they then go through with that act. So I guess for me, I was struggling. I didn't feel like I, I belonged. I felt that my wife was constantly criticising me and, uh, you know, challenging me and, you know, I wasn't doing anything right and all this sort of stuff. And my self-esteem was at such a low level. I thought, well, you know, I might as well just be alone. And I'm obviously not wanted around here. And, and this was my thought pattern. So for me, the solution was I'm obviously not wanted. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, sit and sit on my own. It, and I didn't know where I was going or who I was going to or any of this sort of stuff. And I'm glad I went down that route rather than, you know, looking to harm myself. But uh which could have quite easily also been been the case with the way that I was thinking, um, and for me, like it, I think it was a case of rock bottom. But it was a strange, it was a strange illness because it's I don't know if it was the same for you. Like I didn't, I didn't feel depressed. I didn't feel, you know, I didn't feel like I was was unwell. I just was thinking a lot, and it, it was very negative. You almost, um, I found. Yeah, I found it kind of similar. I think I'd not really um, processed a lot of stuff that I was thinking about, so I was just looking for an answer to everything, as you say, trying to trying to solve that the puzzle, and felt as though, well, you know, I'll sort this out. And I think something that kind of went away against me was about eighteen months previous to that, I'd come out of a another long term relationship, and it had been a really positive decision ultimately for both for me and for for, for my ex partner as well. And I think in my head, I was like, well, it worked last time. 
so I'll just do it again, and she, you know, surely it will work again this time. But, but no, it it was um, it it, it was interesting. I, I mean, following that, about four weeks later, I, I my partner and I got back together again. We're we're still together now. We we bought a house in the last twelve months or so, and very happy. And and you know, I would I would sort of echoes what you said about feeling as though I was being. You know, I was being criticised, I was being put down, or I was being dictated to, and and I didn't take particularly well to that. Um, and I think a lot of that was probably, again, as you say, my self-esteem was really low as well. And and I think every time you hear a piece of criticism, it's amplified when you feel that way because it it, it it's already something that you're saying to yourself time and time again, isn't it? Mate, yeah, one hundred percent. And that's one thing my wife has always said about me. She says like, I have no filter. So like she could ask me to go and yeah, uh, and that's that's for me as a signal as well as when I'm starting to become unwell mentally, is that I start to react to the smallest of things. She could be like, oh, do you mind like just doing the dishes? And I'd be like, oh for fuck's sake, why do I have to do dishes for? Like, I, I was gonna do them. You should know I was gonna do them. And she's like, all right, I've just asked. Whereas a normal, you know, normal reaction to that or a reaction that was um, calibrated would be. Yeah, of course. And your head think, I'll do it in a sec. Like, yeah, you, know, <laughs> you, you do, don't you? And then when you start taking it out on your kids, and you're like, oh, don't bother me at this moment in time. And you know, your brain is already thinking three steps ahead of where people are, but they can't hear that. Mm-hmm. And yet you expect them to know. You know, you expect them to know that the next thing on your list is to wash up and then to you know put the kids to bed. But when you get asked, you're like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it's not until someone points out to you and unfortunately sometimes it's not necessarily family members it takes you know a mate or you know even someone who's a complete stranger just to basically say that you know perhaps stop, it, to... stop being a knob <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't be a dick like... <laughs> but again you know it just it just takes out someone to be able to just reach inside you and be like look something's going on you can handle things in a better way i know you can but what can we do to get to the bottom of it? And for me, like you know, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy has reached deep inside, and and it stemmed surprise, surprise, as most things do with therapists. It stems from my father being overbearing and whatnot, but also at the same time, um, it stemmed from a specific point when I was like 14, 15, and I, you know, I was, broke up with my first girlfriend and she was cheating on me and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, fuck it, the only way that people are going to like me is if I just pretend to be something I'm not. And I carried that through all the way into my late twenties. And I basically was this, this, this empty shell. I had no core values. I had nothing that I couldn't speak my own views because I wasn't strong enough to do so. And I didn't even know what they were. Um, and you start suppressing, you put up, you put all of this stuff onto a really frigid shell and at some stage it's all going to fall off and you're just going to be laid, laid, laid exposed. So yeah. That's my own personal journey. I mean, it's obviously different for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. I feel very. Um, I feel. I feel like I can relate a lot to what you're saying, Chris. I, I. I had a similar experience as a teenager with a with a girlfriend as well, and, and found that very difficult and and damaging to my own identity. I think, especially when you're a teenage lad, you judge yourself very much by do girls like me or not, and like that was basically your only measurement. Can I play? Can I play sports and do girls like me? They're the only things that you need to to kind of worry about at least it was certainly something i was bothered about when i was a teenager with do you yeah. know what your um you were talking about your photography before chris i, I was that I was i was when we were doing the putting the questions stuff together i was i was looking through some of the the photography and stuff i think i think they're really I th- they are incredibly interesting to look at from a 
I think because they, they, the way that you've gone about doing that that project was such that it felt kind of you you you're almost not telling anybody what it is. It's very obvious what it is with whilst not being obvious, if you know what I mean. And I imagine mm. that's probably why they were so effective. Where did the idea to to do it like that come from, or was it just you just felt as though that felt like the right way to represent what you wanted to represent? Do you know what? As I've got older, and this is going to sound like hocus pocus, but as I've got older, I start to think that the universe has a weird way of pointing things and planting things into <laughs> your head, right? I mean, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in um, you know any particular deity, but for me, I just remember sitting and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I was like, well, I, I you know, I, I've got a camera. I'm, I'm, I take, I do commercial photography. So let's just take some photos. And I thought, oh, but what, what sort of style can I do? And no word of a lie, I was sat at a pass during service with a mate of mine. I was like, look, what about this? And I just drew this crude outline of a person and just sh shaded half the face in. He was like, yeah, I mean, it looks like a crap drawing, but I, whatever. Like, I'll, 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 I'll be your tester if you want. And, um, yeah, and I think, you know, the more that I thought about it, it's like with most things in life, <clears throat> sometimes if you don't act straight away, and you just sit with it. It still processes in your background. And what I wanted to do was to show that, you know, that it had to be moody and it had to be quite um, dramatized. So that's why they're black and white. And that's why everyone's deadpan. Because ultimately, you know, I've, I've had people say, well, why aren't people smiling? Surely that's the sort of thing that they should be doing. And I was like, yeah, they could do. But also at the same time, the whole purpose of this is to really just to show that someone's deadpan face you can't you still can't tell what's going on and then the whole shaded thing so the the whole black and white thing is just to really show that like you know we've all got two sides oh you can't see again two sides and ultimately i've always been a big fan of um i did i did martial arts for eight years and yin yang is something that's always kept cropping up in my life and it's something i just resonate with and so that whole like equal black and white, everything in, in equal measures and that, that perfect balance and synergy. And so for this, this, this is what I want to do. You've got the side that you can see and the side that you can't see. Um, so yeah, once COVID buggers off and I'll be able to get back out there, the idea of this is, is to have a gallery and with perhaps anywhere between 200 to 500 to 1,000 of these photos all staring down at you all in a black and white canvas. Um, to really, really hit home that, you know, this is this is a subject that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and I think in that in that scope as well would have that effect of, you know, it's everyone, it's all people, and it's it's in it, you know all different types of people as well, and you know putting them in black and white as well kind of sort of puts people together, but also because it's people's faces, the, the faces are very unique, aren't they? I suppose from that from that distance as well. Whenever anyone talks about things being black and white, I'm immediately taken back to a headmaster that I had in primary school who had this really, this weird thing he used to do in assembly that I think he thought was incredibly profound at the time, where he had a shoebox that he'd painted one half black and the other half white. And he'd say to one teacher on one side of the room, what color is this box? And the teacher would go, it's black. And then the other side of the room, he'd ask another teacher and say, what color is the one? And he'd say, it was white. And he'd say, see, two people can see the same thing from different perspectives. And I just always think back to that and just think, I just imagine like him in his garage and his wife coming in and seeing him painting the box. 
and be like, come on, you're not, come on, Corrie's on in a minute. I, I just hang on a minute, Laura. I've got this box to paint. <laughs> it sounds like an interesting guy. Like, because sometimes, especially at the younger ages, when you'd hear stuff like that, you'd be like, oh, mate, honestly, like, come on, we've got footage to play at lunch. But, but actually, what he was trying to show you is that, like paradigm shifts and perceptions and, and oh, important life lesson, hey? I know, I know. I just, um, yeah, it, it was. De- it was. It would always be a man who would come up with something like that. It would never. It, 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 I just thought, yeah, it was. It was always just very interesting. We we were talking. Um, you were talking a little bit before, Chris, about the the shout, the the tech support service. How um, how have you found the uptake with that? Obviously, particularly during COVID. Yeah, good. I mean, we launched it in uh, on the first of February. Um, so in 28 days of February, we had 45 uses, which from something that people didn't know, or I didn't know it existed until the beginning of February, um, it was incredible. And speaking to Mental Health Innovations, who run the Shout Service and run the Burn Shout Support Service, they said that the uptake from men uh, and the amount of people using the service was significant and something you know it was noteworthy. So we at the end of every quarter will get updated figures now and also what i hope to do is to start investing more money into that service so that we can get specific figures about you know the reasons why completely confidentially but the reasons why people are contacting the service you know are they contacting because they're in crisis point are they contacting because they're lonely or they're grieving or they're depressed or anxious um so that we can really start to attribute some tangible numbers to this industry and say look this is a service that has been implemented. It's had a thousand phone calls over the last year and 50% of those are for this specific reason. Um, then it also helps guide me and my work and allows me to start reinvesting the profits into the right direction. You know, if it's a case that people need um, therapy uh, and they need to speak to someone that's trained, then, you know, that's where perhaps I need to start looking at investing and in creating a network around the UK of individuals that can be contacted and, and can, you know, and the Burnt Chef project either heavily subsidizes that or pays for it in full and just provides that access to people really to be able to, to address it. But I think that ultimately, I think um, just, just by having that tech service there and just by having it branded for hospitality just allows people completely confidentially without making eye contact or knowing who they're speaking to just to text someone about something that perhaps they've never spoken about before. Do you think the the anonymity helps people in approaching it kind of straight off the bat that it give, doesn't mean they have to put their face to something and the sort of when they're first approaching things. Yeah, massively. I mean, we've all sent a text to someone, haven't we out of, out of anger or out of spite and think, ah, yeah, fuck it, it's just a text. You know, I'm going to say what I really feel. Um, and it's the same with mental health. You know, it's the same with, if you need to ask for help, you know, sometimes you, you feel that you can't ask for help from your family members because you might be putting them out or, you know, you might be a burden to them, which is complete fallacy. And it's never, ever been the case. Um, but by doing, you know, just texting a number saying, look, I, I need help to someone who you've never met completely anonymously, I think is, um, I think it's a weight off of many people's minds. And that's why, you know, like the shout service is fantastic. It's, it's a free service. It's 24 hours a day. It's available to anyone, anytime. Um, and you can engage with someone who's who's qualified and who knows how to speak to you and just listen, you know, and, and that's half the battle nowadays is just finding someone to to listen without feeling like you're being judged, which exists around you in your current network. But sometimes it's nice to, to do it with someone who doesn't know you. 
yeah, hundred percent. And for anyone who's who's listening, Chris, who would, you know, if they want to access that, how do they go about doing that? So yeah, I mean, you can if you work in hospitality or if you're affiliated with hospitality in any way, shape, or form, you can text Burnt Chef to eight five two five eight. Uh, and as I say, that that's completely anonymous. It's confidential. It's twenty four hours a day, and it allows allows someone to text you back within five minutes. I've had to use the service actually for someone who's in crisis. Crisis, um, and I must say, I'm I'm astounded by how quickly, how diligently, how friendly the other the other person was on the other end. Um, this particular woman was a woman named Barbara who was just you know she was fantastic. Um, but if you're not in hospitality, you know, you've got the likes of Samaritans. Um, you've also got, you can text SHOUT to that same number, 85258. So exactly the same service, exactly the same number. You just text SHOUT. And again, you'll get exactly the same advisors on the other end of the phone who'll be able to engage with you and be able to listen and, and perhaps point you in the right direction. But, uh, you know, you can use it as much as you want. The, the service is there. It's provided um, for free. And... Um- I don't know if you I don't know if you saw the Roman Kemp documentary that was on quite recently on on the BBC. I think yeah, I think did. most people most people watched it and there's been uh, a three-part documentary series about child sexual abuse in, in in football that's been on as well. I think a lot of the stuff that came up in in both of those those programs were conversations around how men perceive and and express vulnerability, weakness, which are sort of awkward terms, I think, for, for, for men to use, particularly as you were talking before about maybe kitchen environments, maybe sort of hospitality environments. And I suppose for for, for a lot of this sort of stuff, the, 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 the biggest battle is is breaking down those perceptions, is is looking to, to frame those conversations in a different way and maybe look at vulnerability differently as well. From your from your kind of scenario, and, and, and you describe sometimes when you've obviously been vulnerable and when you've had to show weakness for men for many who are listening and for many who want to be able to do that what kind of advice would you give in terms of being able to do that being able to sort of maybe look at the way that your vulnerability is in, in, in a slightly different way yeah i mean i see vulnerability for me as a position of strength now like uh, and i cheesily say it's my superpower like having a, having had a mental illness and being able to be vulnerable means that I'm not holding on. I'm not clinging on to anything that I'm ashamed of anymore. You know, it's, there's this relief of, of not having to hide like what you think is a dirty secret. And, and let's face it, a lot of us think that mental illness is, oh, you know, shouldn't bother anyone else. It's a dirty secret that I there's mine to bear. So I think first off is realizing that being vulnerable doesn't mean that you're weak. In fact, there's great strength in being vulnerable, and it's a greater show of strength to be vulnerable. Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to get injured. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get hurt. I think that if you are ever in a case where you want to open up and talk to someone about how you're feeling, then you should do it with someone that you trust implicitly and that you should do it in the you know in a way that works well for you. And there's no right or wrong way of doing this. Sometimes it's a case of having a beer and going, look, mate, I've been feeling really shit recently. I don't know what's going on inside my head. I just I don't feel happy all the time. I'm having dark thoughts or, you know, I'm not able to step outside because I'm highly anxious. Like what, you know, what do you think? You know, how, what do you think? And like that other person might be like, I don't know, mate. Or they might turn around and say, well, do you know what? Actually, funny enough, I've had exactly the same thing. And now that you've spoken about it, I can speak about it. Or here's how I dealt with it. But, you know, for, for me, I was, I was managing a team of five and I found 
being vulnerable and talking openly about my mental illness, uh, specifically, a great way of, uh, it was a great management tool. It was a great way of bonding with my team and building confidence. And also it showed other people that, you know, and usually in a position of a manager, you have to be quite stoic. My boss, my old boss used to say, you're like a swan on top. You glide across the water, but you like paddle like fuck underneath so people <laughs> don't see. Right. And this is the thing. And by, by me actually letting down that guard and saying to a member of staff who was struggling, like, look, I've been there. Like, I, I, I appreciate how you feel. Here's what worked for me. But if you ever feel like you want to talk about it, I'm here to listen. And that not only turned that individual's life around in terms of, you know, it made him look as at his situation differently. It allowed him to voice how he was feeling, but it helped him feel better. And it helped our relationship and his performance and everything else went hand in hand. So, you know, weakness, all of this bullshit that we've been told over, over the last 100, 200, 300 years, we're not in the stiff upper lip, uh, you know, culture and we're not post-war anymore it's not all about like oh i've cut my arm off i'm just going to turn a care and go yes stoicism exists and certain people are more stoic than others but talking about your health is is you know if you've got a chest infection or you've got covid you wouldn't go nah i'm all right i'm just <laughs> gonna sit here and suffer with it in silence no one needs to know no you'd go to a doctor or you'd tell someone and be like look i this is how i need to handle this why should it be any different for your mental health yeah, hundred percent. And I, I, it was it was interesting really around that the, the end of twenty nineteen. I wrote a, a bit of an open letter. I think it was on, must have been on New Year's Day. I remember I wrote a bit of an open letter and I put it on on so on social media. I remember doing that thing of going, ah, oh, I'm not going to post it. I'm not going to post it. And hitting it and just moving my phone out of the way. And I got a really nice response from people that I some people I hadn't spoken to for a long time. But one thing it did do was I remember being in the. Um, at the bar at, at the football after one of the tramway matches, um, there was about three or four lads. Some of them I knew quite well, and some of them who I only knew because they drunk at the same bar around the, the game that we did, who came up to me and said, oh, I've been feeling a bit like this as well. Or And everyone had had a few pints and stuff, so I think they were feeling a little bit more willing to hand the talk. There was one lad that was stood at the bar. I, I, was, I think we were both absolutely plastered, and I had his phone, and I was putting the name of my therapist into his phone number with the number. And I was like, this is just such a surreal experience. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the, we're at the football, just having some kind of sort of ersatz therapy session down at the end of the bar. It was just really weird. But I think, I think as you say, someone just needs to open a door a little bit and then and let other people kind of come through with something. It's amazing. It's funny you should mention that. I had a flashback. I mean, it's a hazy flashback, don't get me wrong, after <laughs> end of season rugby, rugby game. And, and again, it was a away game, got absolutely... I mean, blotto throughout drunk more and, and so on and so forth, which, you know, if you're doing that every single night, then you, you perhaps want to be asking for help. But um, it was stood at a bar with a bunch of people and they're like, oh, Chris, what the fuck is this Burnt Share project about? What, what are, like, why are you being so soft and all this sort of stuff? And I was like, well, you know, and I just told them my journey. And one by one, I was making eye contact with some of these, you know, big burly 20 stone rugby players. And they were sort of like giving me this knowing head thing. And then afterwards, one by one, not all of them, but like individually, I had people come up to me and go, look, I, you know, I'm really struggling with, with this or I'm, really, I'm having anger issues and violent outbursts and I'm not sure what to do about it. And I'm like, well, have you tried this mindfulness technique? You know, start looking at five things you can see, touch, feel, 
And they're like, oh, no, that's really helpful. They make cheers for that. And I'm like, you know, again, it's just the strength is, is being able to speak about it yourself uh, when you feel comfortable about it and watch other people resonate with that. And all of a sudden you become the lifeboat in a very stormy sea and you're pulling other people aboard. And then all of a sudden you're all, you're all strong. So there's no, there's no weakness because you're all in the same boat anyway. So I think it's, yeah, it's more people, more people go through mental illness and, and, and struggle with their mental health than, than you could possibly even imagine. I think it's about creating that level of trust, isn't it? I think if you were, you know, as you say, expose a vulnerability or a potential vulnerability to people, you know, you say, this is, you know, what I've been through, or this is how I feel, or, you know, this is the way I look at it, and it allows other people to, to trust you that, that you're someone that they can confide in almost, and I think that makes a big difference for, for a lot of people. Finally then, Chris, to sort of end on, on a bit of a positive note, we are sort of hopefully, I say hopefully, approaching the sort of latter stages of what has been a bit of a bit of a rubbish year all round or a rubbish 12 months um hopefully soon we'll have bars and restaurants open and, and people out enjoying themselves what are you kind of looking forward to most about the uh, i don't want to say the roadmap because boris johnson keeps saying it and i don't feel as though it's kind of wise to to say things boris johnson says but what are you kind of looking forward to about that you know that it was getting back to normal so to speak uh, for me personally, like I don't, I'm sure this is probably the same for a lot of people, but I have missed having a pint stood at a bar with my mates chatting shit. <laughs> I've missed it so much. Um, so the first thing is obviously when when outside seating is allowed or whatever the case may be, you know, go in and have a pint with your mates. And probably two pints, I'll be well on my way. You know, gone are the days where you can finish <laughs> seven or eight pints on a night out quite easily. Um, but for me, like I think it's just a case of starting to see some normality return and and just seeing what's you know seeing what's left and see what possibilities there are for the Burnt Chef project. I mean, just today I was very lucky to be invited to two um, trade shows at XL. So you know we've we've got a stand at one in September and one in March, and the XL is a bloody mammoth mammoth thing. Um, you know, sponsoring chefs' jackets, and I think. You know, I think this time of year, generally speaking, I tend to feel a little bit happier as well because the sun starts coming out. The barbecue's nice and clean. The barbecue's good to go. Get some nice brisket. Get some nice marinades on the go. Have a beer outside with your mates. And you know, now you talk of my language now, now, Chris. You talk of my language. Just yeah. keep saying, just keep saying brisket and beer, beer all night. <laughs> brisket, beer, you know, pulled pork, anything that you could do low and slow with a bit of smoking. And I think, you know, I think it's one thing that I really want to take like on moving forward is not to lose sight of what we had, you know, COVID has been shit for, for many people and for many industries, but I think what it has given us an opportunity to do for the first time in generations is to pause and spend time with our family and to become more self-aware and really just, just to live a bit of life. I mean, yes, we've not been able to do much, but we've had, no confines you know with a lot of us who might have been furloughed have not necessarily had to do any work and that's both a good and a bad thing but it's allowed us time to find new hobbies and to learn more about ourselves i don't want to lose sight of that moving forward you know i wanted to value the time that i spend with my family and you know enjoy these dog walks moving forward and not constantly feel like i'm up against it and always rushing 
So thank you for joining us today and listening to our interview with Chris Hall from The Burnt Chef Project. If you want to find out more about The Burnt Chef Project, then there's a few places you can head over to if you go to their website, which is burntchefproject.com. There's plenty to, to have a look at there. And Chris mentioned the photography series that he did, and that's well worth checking out. They're also on Instagram. Um, you can just search the, search the Burnt Chef Project, and they're on Twitter, which is at Burns underscore chef. Chris also records a podcast with people from the uh, hospitality industry, and that's called The Burnt Chef Journal, and that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And Chris also mentioned in that episode the tech service that The Burnt Chef Project are involved with, with Shout. Uh, and if you're in the hospitality industry and you want to have instant support for your mental health, then you can text uh, Burnt Chef, all capitals, to 85258 and if you're not in the hospitality industry that um, that service is available to you as well if you just text shout to 85258 so thank you for listening i am going to now pass you over to to chris and his uh, mini quiz which is to finish us off alan Marn took part in the mini quiz first protocol he was the first guest to take part uh, about a week or so ago um i think he got three so Alan is currently top of the leaderboard with three. That's what Chris has got to beat to get to uh, get to number one in the man marking mini quiz leaderboard. And before I hand you over to Chris's mini quiz, please remember that the purpose of man marking is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation today, but we're asking you to keep it going. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, talk to strangers. But most important of all, remember to listen because sometimes listening could save a life. Thank you for listening. And I'll hand you over to Chris's mini quiz and we'll see you on Friday for our next episode with David Lean. Right, so Chris, we'll make a start, mate, and we'll uh, I'll, I'll kick us off. So question number one, according to a study of 2000 adults in 2020, what are the top three most popular meals in Britain? Oh, bloody hell. Um, fried egg, gammon and chips, uh, fish and chips, sausage and mash and chili con carne. Ooh, you got what one of the three there, Chris? Chili con carne was actually on the list. I was quite surprised actually, although I do love a chili con carne. We had um, Sunday roasted all the trimmings, fish and chips, and a full English breakfast was in there as well. Oh mate, I heard five, so I just I, I, I dished out and still ended up getting it wrong. <laughs> it's not a good start for you on the leaderboard, this, you know, Chris. Question number two then. As of right now, how many followers has the Bairn Chef Project got on Instagram? No looking at your phone. 15,600. 15, Problem is, is, once you get over a certain amount, it only tells you like to the nearest hundred. Yeah. Well, we're going to give you a, a green tick for that one. 15,500 we have. So I've written that you're a proud Somerset lad, but clearly not. You currently reside in Somerset. <laughs> you might be proud of it. Um, but can you tell us which town in Somerset was dubbed a hipster heaven in an article in the Times, which described it as one of the coolest places to live in the UK? Fuck's sake, that's Bruton. It was? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so I lived on a farm, like a 200-acre farm in Bruton. And back when I moved up here about 10 years ago, Bruton was like this dark, dingy not much going on for a town and then somewhere along the line someone from london accidentally got off at the wrong stop ended up in bruton was like oh this is you know i can sell my penthouse flat buy a mansion here and isn't this great and like oh look everyone's wearing tweed and since then god knows what's happened to it but we've got a michelin star restaurant in the town now and it's just full of londoners 
In a recent study of 1,273 people working in the hospitality industry, what percentage of the respondents said that they thought the Burn Chef project would make a noticeable impact in destigmatizing mental health within hospitality? Christ, the exact number or closest to? Exact percentage. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, that was a year ago. Um, 63%. Oh. Done yourself a disservice, 86. Nah, it might have changed in time. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2019, global data researchers attempted to find the top chef influencers, and according to their findings, who was the highest rated UK chef? Oh, it's out of two. It's either Jamie Oliver or um, Tom Kerridge. Not giving anything uh, away. <laughs> go for um, go for Jamie Oliver just because he's more well known. It was correct, Jamie Oliver. Do you know? I think was Gordon Ramsay was up there as well. Actually, Gordon was there. I can't stop because you mentioned Gordon Ramsay earlier, Chris, and I can't stop thinking of that meme where he puts two pieces of bread either side that girl's head <laughs> and says, "Walk an idiot sandwich." <laughs> Question number six then. Somerset is the county of cider. Do you know how many different varieties of cider apple are grown in the area? Uh, yeah, roughly eight or oh, eight or twelve. I'm gonna go with twelve. Four hundred apparently. <laughs> 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 All, right. All right, so I've managed to make my way through twelve of them. <laughs> Pro- Problem. Problem is with the cider up here, it's like seven point five percent. So it's like once you have one, or two, it's like, it's like, face goes numb, and you think, ah, oh, shorts. If we were to purchase one of your fuck stigma t-shirts via the Bain Chef Project website, how much would it set us back? Including PMP or on its own? Ooh, we'll go just on its own. We'll let you off. Like it'll be 20, 25 of your hard-earned, hard-earned pounds, but all money goes to uh, all. Money goes to the normal guy work we do. Oh, I thought you were going to say it'd be free for you because you've got top lads, but you know, whatever. We'll just. <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes without that goes without saying. Once I, uh, yeah, in fact, actually, go for it. You, you take a take a pic and send us over your address. I'll ping you ping some out as a fellow mental health campaigners. Fantastic. I told you that'd work, right? <laughs> Which famous TV cake maker, born in Somerset, became the first president of the New Bath Spa University Alumni Association in 2012? Give you a clue, Spath. 134. <laughs> is it, what, what, what's that? Is it, uh, oh, it's not Mary Berry. It is. Mary it Berry. is Mary Berry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't yeah. know how she's yeah. lived that long when all she does is eat cake. I've, not, I've seen wow. no evidence she's eating it. I've only seen evidence she's making it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. I think she's a secret eater, though.